So our text this evening is uh, John chapter 6, verses 35 through 40. I've already spent a, a week on uh, this section, but there's so much here, and so I want to preach again. This is part two um, under the theme, Seeking the True Bread. So hear God's word from John 6, verses 35 through 40. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Can you imagine never hungering or thirsting again? Hunger and thirst is such a normal part of our daily lives that to be set free from them seems like a far-fetched dream. And yet, Revelation 7:16 describes one of the realities of salvation in heaven as, quote, they shall hunger no more, neither thirst anymore. The days of working out in the hot sun and getting thirsty and needing to seek water to avoid dehydration, that will all one day end. The days of experiencing hunger, where you're weak because of low blood sugar, will no longer exist once we are in heaven. One form of hunger and thirst that will be quenched now and forever is a spiritual, um, ongoing, uh, uh, spiritual longing for righteousness and eternal life. Jesus explains the nature of spiritual hunger and thirst in his Sermon on the Mount when he says in Matthew 5 verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Jesus told the Samaritan woman in John 4 that whoever drinks of the water he gives will never be thirsty again. Jesus told his audience in John 6 35 that whoever comes to him shall not hunger, whoever believes in him shall never thirst. He's not talking about physical hunger and thirst which of course we continue to have as Christians in this life until we are with the Lord. He wasn't talking about the hunger and thirst that we might call it, this longing that we have to be with Christ in heaven and to experience all the joys of heaven. No, we have to wait for that and we long for that. That's part of our hope. He was talking about a hunger and thirst for righteousness. He was talking about a longing to know that you are right with God, that you are a child of God, that you are forgiven of your sins and an heir of heaven. When you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, all of that longing for righteousness is gone because through faith in Christ, his perfect record of righteousness is yours. And you don't have to wonder about your status with God. You don't have to add one good work to what Jesus has done in order to appease your conscience. If you are looking uh, by faith to Christ as the only and complete source of your righteousness, you have salvation. The result is that this longing of your soul to be in fellowship with God is satisfied. Last time we considered the statement that Jesus made to worldly-minded people who wanted from him this unending supply of earthly bread. Jesus stated in absolutely clear terms that he is the bread of life. 
He is the true bread that God has given us and who has come down from heaven in order to give life to the world. The bread that they should have been wanting and that he is willing to give is himself. And last time we considered Jesus' amazing claim to be the I am, as he said, I am the bread of life. As the I am, Jesus is nothing less than Jehovah God, and as such, he is the creator of all things, and thus the source of all physical life, and yet he's more. Jesus' name, his name means Jehovah Salvation. That was the name given to him at birth by the direction of God himself because he was Jehovah come to save his people from their sins. And as the I am, he is eminently qualified to be the bread of life who both gives and sustains spiritual life. And the metaphor of bread even helps us to understand the nature of faith, just as bread becomes one with our bodies and sustains physical life in the way of eating it, Jesus becomes one with us and both gives and sustains spiritual life in the way of receiving him by faith. And so Jesus calls sinners to come and feed upon him. And he explains by means of parallelism in verse 35 that coming to him is believing in him. Uh, Jesus is calling sinners then here in these verses to come to him for righteousness so that your spiritual longings can be satisfied. So I've just summarized really our, our first point from last time, and now we come to the second and third points of our outline. The, the, the second point, the first for this evening, is the incentives, the incentives to seek this true bread, to seek the Lord Jesus, and then the, the certain or sure result. And so we begin with the incentives. In order to encourage his listeners to come to him in faith, Jesus sets forth a number of of incentives. One of these has already been touched on in verse 35. Jesus promises that in coming to him in faith, you shall not hunger and shall never thirst. And uh, this is referring to how in going to Jesus by faith, you receive a life that fully satisfies your soul. Jesus is referring to a spiritual hunger that is satisfied once you believe in him. The hunger and thirst that is quenched is a longing of the soul for fellowship with God. And through faith in Jesus, you are at peace with God. Like Jesus promised in the Sermon on the Mount, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And of course, what's implied there is that they then seek it from Jesus. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be satisfied. Let me explain um, to avoid any confusion on this, the idea of this hunger and thirst forever being satisfied, um, let me explain that just because you put your faith in Jesus doesn't mean that all of your longings are suddenly going to be satisfied. There remain sinful longings, and there remains the temptation to satisfy legitimate longings in sinful ways. For example, covetousness, the desire, the longing to be rich doesn't just instantly go away when you become a Christian. Physical hunger and thirst remain, and they're not wrong. These are not wrong longings, but they can become the occasion for gluttony. Sex desires are legitimate desires to be satisfied, though, within the bounds of marriage. Selfish desires definitely crop up um, as we want things to go our way. We want people to serve us. We think that in our lives we should be able to do what we want when we want to do it. 
And even as believers, we're tempted to think that by giving ourselves material things and by giving into sinful lusts, we can satisfy the hungering and thirsting of our hearts. And the reason for this kind of hungering and thirsting is because of the remnants of sin. It's our sin nature. It's your sin nature that tells you that Christ is not enough and that fellowship with God through his righteousness is not what we really need to be satisfied Meanwhile, the truth is that in Christ you have all that is needed to be fulfilled and happy. If you are looking to Christ to forgive your sins and to make you right with God, you are seeking from him what he has promised to give. And just as Jesus promises, he satisfies all hunger and thirst for righteousness completely and forever. The question then for us, for you, for me, is whether or not we consider having righteousness, uh, whether that's enough for us. Is, is having righteousness enough? Um, we struggle with sinful thinking and desires that tell us there are more important things and more satisfying things than righteousness. And so the first incentive to come in faith to Jesus Christ is that in him, all longing for righteousness will be satisfied. It's sad and yet not totally surprising that many have no interest in this righteousness that Jesus offers. Jesus confronts his audience with their unbelief here in verse 36. He says, but I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. Do you not find the wording that Jesus uses here a bit unexpected? I would expect him to say, but I said to you that you have seen my miracle or this sign of my creating bread and fish, and yet do not believe. Instead, he says, they have seen him. He says, to quote the words exactly, but I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. What he is doing is he's highlighting that what they witnessed was a sign. The miracle they witnessed was a message, a miracle that was about him. The whole point of the miraculous feeding was not that people would be in awe of all of the bread that was, that was there before them, but that they would be in awe of him. What they saw was not Moses and not some mere man. They saw the Son of God doing what only God can do, and yet they did not believe. And Jesus places, notice, the blame for unbelief upon them. But then that raises the question, does the lack of faith in these people mean then that Jesus' mission as the Savior of sinners is a failure? And in verse 37, Jesus explains why this is not the case. And in the process, presents another incentive to come to him in faith. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. It's really in the second part of that statement that we find the incentive. He says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Whoever, he says, which means it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you have done. It doesn't matter what your background is, what nationality you are, what sins you have committed. Some think that Jesus can't possibly be expected to give them righteousness because their sins are too great and too many. Such excuses and concerns are unfounded. Whoever you are, you are invited to come to Jesus. He calls you to come as the sinner you are. After all, he is calling you to come to him in order to seek and receive a righteousness that you don't have. That's the very point. 
The coming to Jesus requires you to be a sinner. For coming to Jesus is all about confessing your sins to him and seeking his solution to your sins. He came in order to earn righteousness for us. He took the, the uh, and he earned the forgiveness of our sins by dying on the cross in the place of sinners. He on the cross was taking the punishment that we deserve. And the purpose was so that all who come to him seeking his forgiveness, who are seeking the forgiveness of their sins, can and will be forgiven. We also remember that Jesus perfectly obeyed the law as the second Adam. The law promises the rewards of eternal life to those who obey it perfectly. And Jesus did perfectly fulfill the requirements of the law for us. Jesus did these things for sinners. And the promise of the gospel is that all who come to Jesus seeking righteousness will be satisfied. Jesus will forgive your sins. Jesus will put his perfect record in the place of your sin record. And as an incentive to come to Jesus in this way, he says that if you come, he will never cast you out. This means first that if you come to Jesus in faith, you will be welcomed and received. Jesus doesn't turn sinners away. He doesn't criticize and browbeat sinners who come humbly seeking forgiveness. He doesn't respond in anger to those who confess their sins as bad as those sins are. He doesn't hate and humiliate those who have rebelled against him and who now suddenly come to him seeking his blessing. Though, yes, a gracious response is not what you and I deserve, Jesus is gracious to those who come to him. He rejoices over the sinner who repents. He's glad when you seek his help. And so in promising not to cast you out, Jesus is saying he is warm and he is welcoming to all who seek him for righteousness. He never drives away those who come to him. That first of all in his words means second, that once you have been welcomed and received, you will be so forever. And the other instances that this word for casting out or driving away is used, it's presupposed that the cast out is already in. It's like you have to be in before you can be cast out. And the implications of this fact and what Jesus says is that first there is no doubt about what Jesus' response is to those who come. They are brought in. They are considered in. In other words, there's no question that those who believe in Jesus Christ are immediately received as his disciples, as his beloved disciples, and as children of God. The next question to be faced is whether Jesus will ever cast such people out. Will he ever drive away those who have come to him in faith and who have been received into the number of the children of God? And so the question becomes one of perseverance and preservation, talking now about the, the P of, of tulip uh, in the five points of Calvinism. Can those who are saved lose their salvation? Can those who become children of God be put out of the family of God? Can sinners be saved and then find themselves unsaved? What Jesus says here is proof of what we call the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, that once a person, a sinner, is truly saved, united to Christ with a living faith, that bond, that relationship is never broken. Call it the perseverance of the saints. And Jesus states it this way, you will never be cast out. Once you have come to him, you are welcomed. And what you must also understand is that this welcome will never change. 
There's no possibility of you being rejected by him, not ever. And so what is the incentive to come? Really, the incentive here to come is the love of Christ for sinners. As the bread of life, Christ is able to give you spiritual life, and not only can he do this, but he does so willingly, gladly. No sinner should ever use the excuse for not believing in Jesus. Well, I was afraid. I was afraid of coming to Jesus, of being received by him. Jesus did not come to save righteous people, but sinners. He came as the great physician to heal the spiritual sick, not the spiritually healthy. Do not imagine that you have to get your life cleaned up and make yourself morally and spiritually acceptable before you will be loved and welcomed. Come to Jesus in repentance and faith and know that you will not be cast out. And Jesus has a lot to say in these verses about how you can know that your salvation in Christ and him is certain and that it can never be lost once you have it. And I again point out in relation to verse 36 that the lack of faith on the part of many in Jesus' audience doesn't mean that Jesus' mission to save sinners is somehow in peril. But don't just take my word for it. Let's look at the text. The reason is given in our text for why Jesus' plan to save sinners is perfectly on track. Nothing is here in failure mode because salvation is a matter of God's sovereign predestination. These verses clearly teach the doctrine of predestination, which in very biblical terms, um, in, um, in a general way, means that, that before God had created anything, he foreordained, he planned whatsoever comes to pass. Now, most of the time, the word predestination is applied in Scripture more narrowly to God's determining from eternity who will be saved and who will not. This predestination includes the doctrine of election, which is the teaching that God elected or chose a certain number of undeserving sinners to be the recipients of his saving grace, and he chose that they would be saved in the way of granting them repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. We find the doctrine of election in the words, all that the Father gives me, all that the Father gives me. First, we notice that the words all that. In the Greek, it's, it's, a, it's here a singular collective noun that indicates a single body of people, all of which in time are eventually given to Jesus by the Father. And second, we understand that if the Father gives sinners to Jesus, they have first belonged to the Father. And this is especially where we find the doctrine of election in our text. Before coming to Jesus, this collective group of people, well, they don't belong to the Father as a saved children, for there's no such thing as belonging to God without faith. The way then that they belong to the Father is as those chosen in his decree to be his and Christ's before the foundation of the world. They belong to the Father as his chosen people. But it is only in time that they are actually justified and saved. And this is what happens when they are given to Jesus. John 17, 6 helps us to understand the meaning of this giving to Jesus. In John 17, 6, we have Jesus talking to the Father in prayer. And he says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. So what Jesus is 
describing as people given to Jesus for him to save. These were people that belonged to the Father in election and were then in time given to Jesus so that he could bestow salvation upon them. And this is the pattern that continues. There are those who belong to the Father by sovereign decree as his elect, and when the right time comes, again part of God's sovereign plan, he gives them to Jesus to save. And God has predestined something to happen, and in this case has predestined to give people to Jesus for salvation. You can be sure they will be saved. Um, this is the ultimate reason that accounts for the certain result that is laid out here in our text. But what exactly is the certain result that is in mind? And I would argue there are two parts. First, the first part of it, of, of the certainty here, is that there will be people who come to Jesus. That first of all. And then second, those who come will be saved. This is the certain result that Jesus is explaining so first, there will be people who come to Jesus. Jesus speaks here with absolute certainty of the fact that those the Father gives him will come to him. Jesus has just admonished thousands of people because they have seen him and yet did not believe. And if you are the disciples, you are at this point probably very concerned about the future of Jesus' kingdom. They've just seen the crowds interested in making Jesus king and They've also seen Jesus reject those plans. Meanwhile, he's calling these people to faith. He's saying, come, believe. And the result is that hardly any, perhaps none, we, we're, we're really, there's no indication that any of these people in this crowd are coming to him. It would certainly look like to outward appearance that the viability of Jesus' kingdom is in peril. That his plan of salvation is in peril, but Jesus now declares there will be people who come to him. And the surety lies in the fact that God has a people to give him, and that those he does give to Jesus will come. And remember that to come to Jesus is to believe in him, which means that Jesus is saying that the, those that the Father gives him will believe in him. Well, how can Jesus be so sure of this? How can he make such an absolute statement? Well, the certainty comes from the fact that God is the dispenser of faith and of the accompanying repentance. I'd remind you of Ephesians 2, which tells us that faith is a gift of God. God decides who gets faith. Acts 11:18 tells us that repentance is also something that God grants. And he doesn't grant these things to everybody. He grants belief and repentance to those the Father has decided to give to Jesus. The elect make up this limited body of sinners whom God has determined to save, to save, and because Jesus knows what the Father will do, Jesus is confident that there will be people who come to him. If coming to Jesus was left up to the free will of man, if the idea was, as we are told by some, that God really had no idea who would believe whether people would come or not? I mean, that's what you ultimately have to, to say is the case. If it's totally up to the will of man, well, then there's no way that Jesus could have spoken with any certainty of people believing in him. The certainty comes from knowing that when God supernaturally and sovereignly wills that sinners come to Jesus, they will. He regenerates sinners through the Holy Spirit. He works in them a hunger to go to Jesus for righteousness. So notice that the coming 
is a result of the giving. It's always a result of the giving. It's the Father who gives. And when the Father acts, nothing can stand in the way of his moving sinners to want to go to Jesus with a hunger for his righteousness. And then the second part of the certain result that is described here in our text is is the certainty that those who come will be saved by Jesus. And what makes this certain is Jesus' devotion to the Father's will. Um, There's a lot here said about the will of the Father. First of all, it was the will of the Father to send Jesus. Notice verses 38 and 39, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. The will of God regarding why Jesus was sent is also laid out. Jesus was sent by the Father with the specific purpose of saving sinners, of saving all those given to him by the Father. Jesus explains that will to, again, uh, quote from from verse 39. He says, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Notice that Jesus is referring to that same group of people spoken of with this singular collective noun, all that the Father gives him. And he says regarding that group that the Father's will is that literally Jesus should destroy none of it. The ESV here says that he should lose nothing of it, uh, nothing of all. But in, literally in the Greek it says that the Father's will is that Jesus should destroy none of it. But to the contrary, raise it up on the last day. And so what is envisioned is Jesus on Judgment Day resurrecting the bodies of believers and granting them in body and soul, not the destruction of hell, but the experience of fellowship with God in heaven. And this will be the ultimate evidence of the fact that Christ has successfully saved them, saved us from the curse of sin. Notice verse 40, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And so the goal that God had in mind when Jesus was sent was the salvation of the elect. Jesus was sent in order to give his life as a ransom for sinners. There was death on the cross, the purpose of that, so that all who are given to him and consequently come to him will be saved. And what it adds to the certainty that those who come to Jesus will be saved is Jesus' perfect obedience to the Father's will. In verse 39, Jesus makes clear that his will and the Father's will are in perfect alignment. Notice, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. And uh, this alignment of Christ's will and the, and the Father's will are true in two ways. First of all, as the Son of God, Jesus' will and the Father's will are literally one and the same will. You understand there's only one will of God, because even though there are three persons in the Godhead, they are united in one nature with one will, which means that when the Father elected sinners, determined to save them through the work of the Son, and by uniting them to Christ by faith, the Son perfectly agreed with that plan, and the Holy Spirit also willingly took on his role in man's salvation. There's one will within the Godhead. 
But then also that Jesus' will is in line with the Father's is true, even as we, think, as we, we reckon with the fact that Jesus is the incarnate Son of God. So as a man with his own human will, Jesus faced the temptation of pitting his will against God's will. And yet Jesus never gave in to the temptation. It was unthinkable to him that he would ever do something that was not in line with God's will. That was part of his perfect obedience, which means that Jesus was determined always to obey God, to always put God's interests first over his own, and that is exactly what he did, especially on the cross. Jesus set aside his own comfort, his own interests, because it was the Father's will that he suffer for sinners by dying the cursed death of the cross. And we see in what Jesus says here that he knew what the Father's will was. His will was that Jesus receive sinners and give them eternal life. And that is what exactly Jesus says he's going to do. He says that whoever comes to him, he will never cast out. He will never turn sinners away because that would be contrary to the Father's will. The will of the Father is from a negative point of view that Jesus lose nothing of all, that he has been, of, of all that has been given him. Literally, the Father's will is that none of all those given to Jesus be destroyed, and Jesus is completely on board with that plan. Further confirmation is found in the words of verse 40, in which Jesus says, I will raise him up on the last day. Notice the flow of thought in verse 40. For this is the will of my Father, now, we hear, now we're explained what that will is, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. What is Jesus' response? I will raise him up on the last day. I will do what the Father wants. I will save sinners. This is the will of the Father, that those who come to Jesus be saved. And Jesus says he will raise up those believers on the last day. He has a will that lines up exactly with the Father's will. And in the end, from what Jesus says, we recognize that the disciples, they don't need to fear about the success of Jesus' kingdom. Yes, not many at that particular moment were looking to Jesus in faith, but Jesus was not concerned. Nothing was happening that was surprising or frustrating. We have here in these verses really a symphony of human responsibility and God's sovereignty. Notice the blame for unbelief is put on sinful man. The invitation to come to Jesus goes out to all, and the reason that some respond with coming is because God's grace makes certain sinners, those of the elect, willing and able to repent and believe. At the same time, it is man who must look to the Son and believe in him if he is to have eternal life, and so this call goes out to sinners far and wide to come to Jesus. And the promise remains that if you go to Jesus by faith, seeking righteousness from him, he will never cast you out because it's both his will and the Father's will that Jesus be the Savior of sinners. Praise be to Jesus, right? Praise be to Jesus who is willing to submit his will to the Father's will in order to accomplish salvation. And praise be to, to the Father for deciding to give sinners to Jesus, his Son, for the Son being willing to do all that is necessary for when these sinners come to save them. And the question for you to ponder is not whether the Father has given you to Jesus. Some people get hung up on that. Well, how do I know if the, the Father has given me to Jesus? Well, the question for you is, well, have you gone to Jesus for eternal life? That's the question to answer. And if you do, 
you are to know that he will give you eternal life. The only thing that is required is that you hunger for the righteousness that Jesus alone can give and then go to him for it. But for that, you have to first of all know your need. You have to know that you are a sinner worthy of God's curse and wrath. You have to humble yourself and admit that you need salvation, that you need righteousness, that you do not have righteousness of your own. Will you go to Jesus? The certain result will be to experience firsthand why Jesus is called the bread of life. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the Lord Jesus, for his willingness, his commitment uh, to save us, which is your will. Um, Father, we thank you for how even from eternity it was your will that sinners would be saved through the Lord Jesus Christ and that this plan of salvation has been uh, taking place exactly as you have willed. Jesus paying the penalty for sin on the cross, sinners being given uh, repentance and faith to come to Christ. Father, we thank you that your kingdom is being built, not because of man, not because of the exercise of our free will, but because of your sovereign plan to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ as the Savior of sinners. Father, we pray that each one of us here would know what it is to hunger and thirst for righteousness, and to go to Jesus and to find that hunger fulfilled, that thirst quenched. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.